Maybe you're here this morning seeking truth. Maybe you're wanting to find Christ. Maybe you're here and uh, you've just been drugged here this morning. And you've done this all before. You've heard all the stories before. You, you, you know the story of the resurrection. You know the story of Christ. And uh, you just even maybe say, that's probably right. But what does it mean for me? Maybe you're here this morning and um, you've heard it so many times you just don't care. And maybe you're just kind of hardened. <clears throat> I, I want to challenge you. I want to give you a challenge to say, Jesus, speak to me today. Reveal the truth. Lord, I, I want to ask you to show me the power of your resurrection. I want to ask you to speak to my heart. Lord, I've, I've heard it all my life. I know it. And um, I'm just here because it's Easter. Or I'm just checking the box. I challenge you to say, God, speak to me today. Lord, I, I want to know you. I want to believe and I want to experience the power of living and resurrected Lord. And I'm willing to be open. Father, I thank you for each one that's here this morning. And I pray, God, that you would, Lord, open our hearts and our eyes that we might see Jesus. That we would uh, get past our inhibitions and the questions that we think we have that are so so big and that Lord we would simply say Jesus speak to us speak to my heart Lord I, I'm willing to look at the facts Lord I pray that you draw those people to you to know you as the risen and resurrected Savior as one who can change our life one who gives us hope life and eternity and Lord we ask this for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, happy Easter. Resurrection Sunday as we celebrate this all over the world. Uh, people are celebrating Easter. Matter of fact, there's a the resurrection dance that's going on in Budapest right now. We're literally thousands and thousands of people are coming out and celebrating uh, the, the resurrection and the hope of their faith. It's just amazing what God is doing across the world. And, you know, what's interesting to me is if you go back and you look at ancient history, the first couple of centuries, the big emphasis, uh, certainly there was an emphasis on the cross and the importance of the cross, but you didn't see a lot of symbols. As a matter of fact, you virtually never saw a symbol of a cross. The big emphasis was the resurrection. Now, the cross was essential uh, because the Bible said there had to be a sacrifice made for our sins. There had to be atonement. And so the cross was essential, but the cross cannot be the only essential. The resurrection... A cross without the resurrection would have meant, as Paul said, uh, would have left us hopeless. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said that basically we are foolish if there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied, Paul says. And so it is an imperative doctrine. It is an imperative event for the Christian and for the believer the resurrection of Christ, not just that he died, not just that he was buried, but on the third day he rose again and we celebrate. We call it Easter today. Now, 
The title of my sermon is this. Is Christianity a left-brain religion or a right-brain religion? Okay? Uh, a lot of times, many of you have heard that term before. Right-brain people are typically people who are more creative, uh, people who are more experiential, uh, people who are more intuitive. Left-brain people, on the other hand, are more analytical. Uh, they're more logic-driven, facts-oriented. So which one is Christianity? Is Christianity a right-brain faith? Or left brain faith. Here's the truth. Christianity is both. It's right brain and left brain. You certainly have to believe the facts. You need to know the facts. And the resurrection is, is the big one. The huge one. It's the one that we have to get there on. As a matter of fact, it was interesting. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist who goes all over uh, America and the world doing debates, uh, refuting Christianity, refuting that there is even a God who exists, uh, was doing a debate. Uh, not too long ago, or actually was being interviewed by Marilyn Sewell, who is a Unitarian uh, pastor over in Oregon. And, and when she was talking to Dr. Hitchens, she said, um, first of all, I'd just like to say, Dr. Hitchens, when you talk about uh, what Christianity is like and, and how you think it poisons everything, aren't you really talking more about the conservatives and the evangelicals? She goes, I myself am, am not. I, I consider myself a very liberal Christian and I don't believe in the death and the burial and resurrection of Christ. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement. And I don't believe any of those things are, are literally true. But I think they're a good message. And Dr. Hitchens, who's an atheist, said, well, I'd say if you don't believe those things, you're really not any kind of meaningful Christian at all. That's pretty good theology right there. If we can't accept the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then we don't have a faith at all. Because Jesus wasn't merely a teacher. If he was only a teacher... And thousands of people gave their lives and died. That would be a pretty bad teacher. If he's not God in the flesh, then what he did was horrible. Because literally hundreds and thousands of people have died for their faith. But he's more than a teacher. He is a God in the flesh. And so I want us to real briefly look at the facts. And then I want us to look at the experience. Because the truth of it is, it's both. It's not just having a mental assent to a set of propositions that we think, yeah, I believe those things are true. Well, that's not salvation. But it's not just emotional and experience either. It's a combination of recognizing the facts and trusting the Savior and ex receiving Him and accepting Him. So I want us to look at a passage that we wouldn't typically look at for Easter. Uh, and I want us to look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 15 through 24, real briefly. And here's the truth of it. When we, um, you know, when I was in college, I made up this list of all, this, all these things that I wanted in a wife. And, you know, they were important things. They were like, uh, I want somebody that knows Christ, somebody that wants to have a heart for ministry, and then somebody likes sports, uh, somebody plays piano, Somebody this high, all, all these, you know, blonde, whatever it was that I came up, this ridiculous list that I had. And, you know, and I actually started going out with that girl. I found somebody was on my list, and it, and it didn't work. I mean, it just wasn't there on any way. And because I was only going on the facts as opposed to the experience. And, you know, here's the real truth. When we get married, we kind of take a leap of faith, don't we? But we certainly don't just say, I mean, I mean, some pig-headed guys might do this. Oh, this is the look I'm looking for and the income, and that's what I, and that's what I'm in. 
But that's a bad way to do marriage, we would all agree. If you only do it on the resume, there has to be some kind of connection there, doesn't there? Same thing is true with our faith. There has to be some kind of connection. And the real truth of it is you won't have all your answers going in. If we needed all our answers before we got married, we'd never get married. Same way when we hire somebody and you're looking at an employee and they can look great. Resume's perfect. Then we get an interview and we go, hey, he ain't right. <laughs> he ain't right for us anyway. You know what I mean? You start looking at it. Or if somebody just has a great interview, they can come in and sell you. But then you start looking at the facts and you go, well, this would be their sixth job in six months. They quit or been fired everywhere they've been in the last over the last six months. Then you would know, hey, I've got to look at both of these. Both of them. And it's the same way with our faith. And you take some degree of a leap, if you want to use that word in faith, and you can look back and see the truth. We see that in our relationships. We see that in our occupation. We see that in... In reality. And so as we look at that, I just want to answer that question because sometimes some people want every question answered. You know what? You're not going to get every question answered immediately. You have to do what Paul did. who probably had a ton of questions when he came. And yet he knew it was true. You've got to get, here's where you got to get the resurrection. You believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that he died and rose again. Hey, the rest of it, I promise you, you can take care of itself. But you got to get there. Here, we're going to look at just a couple of really almost obscure facts that we would miss if we looked at this. And we'll look at a couple others here in just a moment. But in uh, Luke chapter 24, beginning with the 15th verse. And now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. These are a couple of followers of Christ after Jesus has died, and after he's been buried, and after the resurrection has occurred. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now, some people would say, that's odd. Why wouldn't you recognize Jesus? Well, first of all, these weren't close followers of Christ. These were followers, but these weren't, these weren't people on the, on the inner circle. Remember, Jesus has just been beaten to a pulp and he's dead. Okay. Also, the passage tells us that, he, that they're downcast. They're kind of down in the mouth. They're kind of looking probably at the ground. But also, we have instances where people, their own children have been in car accidents and they have not recognized them, even in the hospital. So those are no kid. Their own spouse didn't even recognize them. So it's not unbelievable that they wouldn't have recognized them. They weren't anticipating. They weren't thinking in that manner. He continues, it says, and he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor Jerusalem? And do not know the things that have happened there there in these days? <clears throat> now, the first thing that's interesting of note is the form that's used here. We see that the Bible specifically calls this man Cleopas. Now, what's, what's uh, significant about that is today when we write papers or we write books or we make claims in writing, what do we do? We put footnotes that make them verifiable. That we can go to that source and see, is this legitimately true? This uh, suggestion that has been made in this paper or book. And that's what footnotes are made for. In that day, they didn't have footnotes. The way they would do it is they would use specific names. They would use people's names, their proper names, and so that you could go and verify if that information was actually correct. So when you see the word Cleopas, but not the other name, that was uh, what Robert Balkan, who is a uh, historical scholar at St. Andrews, he says this. He said, in ancient writings, one of the ways that we can verify the truth uh, versus legend is if a name is used. He said, if it's a legend, sometimes they might make up two names to make it more believable. 
if there are no names, it's almost always alleged, not necessarily always, but a significant time. But when there's one name, it tells us something. The writer is saying, verify it if you wish. Go and see. Matter of fact, the names are used for the women earlier in verse 10 as well. So there are people that you can go and speak to and talk to and find out if this is really true. So it shows us the validity of this passage, the, the authenticity of this encounter. What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and, and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And, and by the way, it was Jewish belief that on the third day there was absolutely no return of the Spirit. It was believed by most Jews, in, uh, at least in their extra legend, that, that that was it. There was the ending. There was no Spirit left. He continue here and he says, we were hoping that, but it didn't happen. And in verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early that morning, but didn't find the body. They came and told us that they had a vision of an angel who said he was alive, and then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not. But we did not see him. What's significant about that? Well, secondly, we can know the reliable and the authenticity of this story and of this document because if you were going to make up a story, what you wouldn't do is say that women were your principal witnesses. Why? Because Jewish women in that time in that, that time of, the, of history, were not considered credible witnesses before a court of law. If you went to court, and it was simply because two or three women saw it happen, it was inadmissible. You couldn't use it. They weren't given those rights. So if I was going to make up a story, if I really wanted people to believe the gospel and I was making up a story, what I would say is, John and Peter, they found the tomb and it was empty. Or I would use two other men of reputable source, and that's who I would tell. But he doesn't do that. Luke simply recounts the facts. Why else would he say women if it wasn't because he was he was simply admitting to the facts? This is what happened. It's another proof of the validity of the text and of the truth. And then Jesus says to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe. Basically, he's saying, you knuckleheads, how slow are you to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. We know that this account is factual because it meets the criteria. Matter of fact, Dr. Dr. Richard Swinburne from Oxford University, uh, who is a very prestigious scholar and philosopher, uh, they held a forum at Yale University about four years ago. And what they were doing, they were taking different historical events and they were gathering the evidence to see what is the validity that these things actually occurred. And when they came to the resurrection, and this is, again, this is not a Christian forum. And when they came to the resurrection, they, they compiled all the information biblically and extra biblically outside sources and put it all together. They used something called Bayham's Theorem, which is a process that they take uh, historical events through to see if they uh, can be valid, validated or not. And so they put them through this theorem, 
And they came up with, there was a 97% chance that the resurrection actually occurred. This is Yale University. It's not the beacon of evangelical Christianity, okay? And they're just simply saying, this is just what the evidence suggests to us. So, what are some of those things? What are some of those evidence? What are some of those facts? Well, number one, the fact that Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. The fact is highly significant because it means that the location of Jesus' tomb was known both by Jews, Christians, and Romans alike. Everybody knew where the tomb was. Why? Because Joseph of Arimathea was a very, uh, a very powerful man. He was on the high council of the Jewish board, and he was wealthy. Uh, we know this because he had his own tomb. Uh, and so he was someone that everybody knew, certainly all the Jews knew. He was on the very council that sentenced Jesus to death. And so he was, uh, he witnessed it all. And yet he goes and boldly asks for the body of Christ, has it placed in the tomb. If you remember, Pilate has guards placed there, has a huge stone rolled there. And then three days later they go and it's gone. The body's gone. It's disappeared. Now what's significant about that is the only theory that really came up was, well, well, one minor theory was, you know, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Are you kidding me? It was Joseph of Arimathea. Everybody knew where his tomb was. Everybody would have known after Christ had been put there. Everybody would have known for three days where there were guards and there's a big stone. I mean, it was pretty obvious. So we look at Joseph of Arimathea, someone who had much to lose if it weren't true. Someone who had never been coerced into a hoax. He had already arrived at the status of which he had worked so hard to, to obtain. The fact on Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion that the tomb was empty. And it was found by a group of women. We talked about the importance of that. And not only that, the, the only theory that ever has still come up was that, well, the disciples must have gone and stolen his body. That right there tells us that the tomb was empty. At a minimum, they're admitting there was a body there, but it's no longer there. We can't explain to you how they overpowered the guards. We can't explain to you how they moved the stone. But at least we, we, we this is the only theory we can come up with. They, they must have stolen it somehow. But again, under penalty of death, the Roman soldiers would have been killed if they'd allowed them to do that. There was a stone that was huge that was placed there. On top of that, Jesus said, three days later, I will rise again. And the, the religious leaders were concerned about that. And that's why they had Pilate post it and seal it. Thirdly, the fact that multiple occasions under various, various circumstances, different individuals and different groups saw Jesus alive. Paul says that there were over 500 people that saw Jesus alive. The disciples the ro- on the road to Emmaus, the women, there's individual after individual and we have names for many of them. Falsifiable evidence that if they could simply go and get one and say, under torture or whatever, did it, this really didn't happen, but none. Not a one ever said, that didn't happen. That wasn't true. There were the names that were given. People that they could have uh, tried to at least manipulate. But no one recants. And they're willing so much to die. They believe so much that they're willing to die for their faith. Which is the next point. The disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe Jesus was risen from the dead despite having a predisposition to the contrary. What do I mean by that? Well... Up to this point, they're, they're hiding. They're afraid. They're scared. They're running. They're hoping people don't find them. They're hoping nobody finds them and crucifies them. But all of a sudden, they're willing to stand up and say, 
We've seen the risen and the resurrected Lord. He's alive, I tell you. And person after person begins to encounter Christ. Not the least of these, which was the Apostle Paul. The man who sought out to exterminate Christianity. It was his sole purpose in life. The man who grew up in the religious law and Jewish law. The man who believed the Torah and the Old Testament. And now by professing faith in Him, He's making obsolete half the Old Testament because now the sacrificial and the ceremonial system will no longer be necessary. Paul's an intellectual. How did he go from killing people and imprisoning people who were Christianity to all of a sudden being the prominent leader of a faith? I mean, did he just read a pamphlet one night? You don't get there if you're an intellectual. You know what I mean? He saw Jesus and he experienced Jesus and it changed him forever. It transformed his life. The Apostle Paul. Matter of fact, you know, probably the most prominent belief of any Jew, even today, was this. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O hear, Israel. The Lord God is one. There's only one God. And what Jews were always brought up to say is that no human could ever be God. Now, virtually every other religion, most of the other religions, had... They, they didn't have a problem at all with humans being God. The Caesar, maybe, or the Pharaoh. That was a very commonplace. But what made Jews completely distinct was they would never see anyone but Yahweh as God. And now Paul, a Jew of Jews, of the tribe. He, matter of fact, in, 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 uh, if you go and look at Philippians chapter 3, he gives his resume of all his education, of his heritage, of everything that he's accomplished. Now he turns his back on that and says... I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. He came to save us. It's remarkable. It changes him, and God uses him to change history. And and not to even mention the early church and Christians, mainly servants and mainly slaves, who so give their lives that thousands upon thousands literally die for the claim of Christ, that they either saw Him or they experienced Him, or both. They're willing to die for their faith. How do you account for an event that changes the history of mankind, unless it's true, unless these people really saw the risen and resurrected Christ? But it's not enough just to believe those facts. It's not enough to just say, yeah, well, I I think those are true. The Bible tells us in James chapter 2 that the demons themselves believe that that is true and they shudder at the sound of his name. But it's not just, I believe those facts. It's as Paul says, I want to know him. In Philippians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 3, verse 10. And Paul says this here in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his suffering and becoming like him in his death. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Paul didn't just come to a set of facts that he now believed. That's not transformational in itself. Okay? Paul came to that place where he had that experience on the Damascus Road where it transformed him and changed him forever. And then he was able to work backwards and begin to deal with a lot of the questions that he had. He trusted Christ. He experienced Christ. He came to know Christ as the living Lord and Savior. He came to know Him. He needed to come to know Him not just as a teacher, not just as someone who provided a good example, 
You can't pray to someone like that. You can't have a relation with someone who was just a teacher, who just who just had a, had a great example or lived a great life. But you pray to God. We pray to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We can have a real relationship with Him. You're transformed by the power of the resurrection. We're transformed as we begin to read and to pray and to study and to seek Him. And God transforms us in, in the beginning. And then we go through the process of regeneration where we begin to grow in our faith. Now, how does that occur? Well, let's talk about it real briefly. Number one, you believe the facts. And the main fact is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Do you believe that Jesus did that? Do you believe that he walked upon this earth, he was sinless, and then he died upon a cross, he was placed in a grave, and on the third day he rose again? Hey, if you can believe that, the rest of it will come, okay? But you've got to start right there. We've got to believe that as truth. It's an essential doctrine. Number two, do you recognize your need? Do you recognize you can't save yourself? You're not going to be good enough. That you're not going to get at the end of your life one day and, oh, i got more good deeds than bad deeds. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the standard to be accepted by God is perfection. In other words, I would have to be perfect. And since we cannot do that, we have to have our sins forgiven. They have to be atoned. You know, at the last birthday, my son had... Uh, sometimes I, I become a big money guy. I, I had these 50 cent pieces and he had about 12 or 13 kids there. And I, I gave out these 50 cent pieces and there was one little boy that walked up and he goes, uh, can I have one? And I, I didn't recognize him. I've never seen a kid before in my life. I said, well, who are you? And he goes, I'm Brock's friend. All right, here you go. You can have one. You know, it's a beautiful picture. That's what God's done for us. I, I trusted Jesus. Jesus is my savior. Covered. You can't do it yourself. You can't pay for your sins. You can't pay off your debt. You're covered because of what Jesus did on the cross. And because he's conquered sin and death, he has the power to forgive you. The power to make you right before God. And number three, confess him as Lord. I don't believe he's one of the ways. I don't believe he's a good teacher. I don't believe this is a good theory. I don't think this is a good way to live. I believe he is God in the flesh and that he can save me. I profess him as Lord. And lastly, invite him in to transform your life. Invite him in and begin a relationship to transform your life and say, God, come in life. I believe the facts. Come in my life. Forgive me. Save me. And Lord, take over. Take control of my life. I give it to you. That's salvation. And let me say this. It doesn't always mean there's this huge, big change that automatically happens. Sometimes it does like with Apostle Paul, but regeneration is usually kind of a slow growth process. I don't become sinless, but as I grow, I sin a whole lot less. And that's what regeneration is, as I come and God creates me and forms me into the image of Christ. The question is, have you ever come to the place where you said, I believe it's true, and God, I trust you. I want to experience the power of your resurrection. Come into my life and take over. Save me. Have you done that? If you haven't, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Let's pray together. In just a moment, I, I'm going to ask you to pull out a card, and it's going to have four four things on it. The first one is, I, I accept Christ. I want to accept Christ as my Savior today. I believe the facts, and I want to experience the power of the resurrection. I want to know Him. I want to follow Him in relationship. I want to commit my life to Him. 
The second one is baptism. If you've already done that and you've not been baptized, I want to encourage you and challenge you. It's the first thing that Jesus asks us to do after we trust him to be baptized. Third one, if you've never uh, become a part of a church, if you're not serving, if you're not uh, getting involved somewhere, I want to encourage you to take that next step today. And the fourth one is, I'm just not ready. I don't want to do it. Uh, And that's fine if that's where you are, but I want to encourage you to take a leap of faith today. Just like you've taken a leap of faith in relationships when you've taken a job. And I'll tell you this, if you will believe, if you'll say, God, I I believe you can do that. I believe you can change me. Then you'll look back a year from now and you'll see the truth. You'll understand it if he comes in and begins the process of transformation. But you've got to take that step. And I want to invite you to do that today in just a moment here. And uh, let's pray a prayer like this. If you don't know Christ or you're uncertain, you can pray something like this. Dear Jesus I believe that you died for me. I believe that you came and lived upon this earth as God in the flesh. And that, Lord, you went upon the cross. You took my sins there because you were perfect and holy. And the Bible said there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. You shed your blood. That if I would believe that you could do that, and I would enter into a relationship, that you would cover me. You would cover my sins. And that God would look upon me and see me as acceptable as a child because of the sacrifice you've made, because of the relationship I have with you, and because of the trust that I've transferred to you as opposed to what I could do or what anybody else could do. So, Lord, I believe those facts. I believe that's true. Come in my life. Save me and forgive me. And, Lord, begin the process of transformation. I commit my life to you this day. If you've never prayed a prayer like that, I ask that you pray that now and let God begin to transform your life. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them this day. You'd let them know it's true. The power of the resurrection that gives new life. Let them experience that life even today. Let them come back and know that you are God. In your name I pray.